This conversation is brought to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available at Fuller, a new way to learn and community this fall with youth, family, and culture cohort. This online cohort offers new students a youth-focused pathway within the Master of Divinity, MA in Theology, MA in Theology and Ministry, or MA in Intercultural Studies degree. Interact with Fuller's world-class faculty as part of a tight-knit cohort and benefit from tailored course sequences, dedicated cohort advisors, career planning support, and a commitment to whole life formation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash youth cohort. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of CBF's podcast. We also want to let you know that if you have authors, practitioners, or other people that you think we should feature on the podcast, be sure to drop me an email at ahale at cbf.net. That's A-H-A-L-E at cbf.net. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Stuart Brody. He is a lawyer, a consultant for business and political leaders, and the founder of Integrity Intensive. Stuart, thank you for joining the conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Now, for those that aren't familiar with your story, take us a little deeper into to who you are and a little bit into your career. Well, I guess I could say that um, I'm writing a book kind of uh, later in life. And because I had a very long career in law and politics. I hasten to say I'm no longer a lawyer, but nobody will ever let me say that because the, the idea is that once you're a lawyer, you're stuck with it. So I think, um, I, I guess I won't go up that road, but I, I haven't practiced law in a while because I started to see the limitations of both that work and also the other work that I was doing at the same time, which was political leadership. And I was a, the leader of a county organization, then an umbrella organization, and pretty much the leader of, of a state, of a state's political party. And I, I found in both of those that there were fine people that I was meeting, very fine people, but that there were institutional problems and that we weren't getting things done. We weren't achieving justice and we weren't achieving, which is the, the goal of law. And we weren't achieving uh, trust, which is the goal of politics. So I left those professions and started to realize that uh, maybe teaching was the way to embark on this. And, uh, and I did. So I started teaching in New York at this SUNY system. And then I started lecturing. And eventually, I felt that it was time to kind of express these ideas. Uh, in a book, and that was the genesis of the law of small things. Now, you you did some work with uh, you know consulting and advising presidential candidates. That's, you know, you don't get to talk to somebody every single day who's done that before. So, what does that look like on a on a day to day basis for for when you were doing that? I think all political candidates have some kind of claim 
to to the truth. I think they they have ideas that are important. They that they think are important. Uh, on the other hand, I think the the problem with politics, if it can be summarized in in one sentence, is that it's more important to be clever than truthful. When you think about that, it's it, it, cleverness, this, the the ultimate expression of of a point of view and a soundbite, is more important than uh, really flourishing out the contours of truthfulness. Uh, so that's a major difference. I I was sitting once with a presidential candidate and who had done very poorly in a debate the night before, nationally televised debate, and we were all gathered there and. Everybody went around the room and said, well, this was terrible. We've got to fix this. We, we've got to correct what the candidate said. We've got to put a good spin on this. And they were using words like that. And I kept thinking to myself, boy, if we just expressed what the candidate actually felt about an issue, that, the, that, we, that would actually be compelling rather than trying to uh, come up with some kind of compelling soundbite. And, and so... You know, it went that way. It went, let's see if we can come up with some kind of attractive soundbite rather than making the truth, uh, you know, attractive and compelling. And I think that was a turning point for me. It's like, okay, we have to teach political leaders how to be truthful. It's not easy. We have to start with ourselves. Now, you did uh, some of your schooling at, at the University of Chicago, but that's not where you're originally from, right? No, I'm, I'm from Long Island and, uh, you know, from a Jewish background. And I went to the University of Chicago uh, and got a, a pretty amazing education there. Really loved the Midwest and stayed there. And then, uh, then I actually did go back to New York State, but uh, not the southern part, but actually the northern part. So... Uh, I was actually transplanted to rural New York and became the political leader for upstate New York, which is uh, predominantly rural, as probably your listeners know. Well, I guess if you're from Long Island, the most important question is, how do you feel about the Islanders moving to Brooklyn? (laughs) Well, I think whenever anybody leaves their their home domain and you know i mean there are people i'm old enough to remember you know the brooklyn dodgers i i actually went to a game in ebbets field i was probably six you know that kind of thing and uh, it was fantastic and then the the dodgers left now there aren't too many people alive still who remember that but i know people who are still angry about it so it's just, you know, one of those things, I guess. Uh, but the Yankees are still there. So, But I definitely became a Cubs fan. I got to tell you, I, I love the Cubs. So it's it's uh, very hard to decide when the Cubs play the Yankees. Oh, that's, that should be an easy decision. I was, I'm glad to hear you converted to, uh, to being a Cubs fan because I'm actually a lifelong New York Mets fan. And it is painful always to be the little brother in town. <laughs> Well, they've won a couple of World Series, and I was at one of them. And uh, boy, they can be exciting. Or that series was—that was a while ago. But the but the Yankees, you know, there's so many metaphors. I, I was sitting with a guy the other day, total baseball fan, and if he's listening, his name is Brian. I won't say his last name. He's from Vermont, 
kind of a stoic Vermonter. And um, I said, Brian, uh, how do you compare baseball to integrity? And he started laughing. And then he said, well, you know, you come up, you're sitting in the, you're standing in the on deck circle and you have a donut on your bat and you start swinging and you're thinking about timing and you know, you've got aspirations to get up there and, and do the right thing. But if that's the only practice you've had, you're not going to get too far. So <laughs> his point, his, his point was you, you can't gear up to, to, to hit a baseball from the on deck circle. You have to practice for years. And of course that is the theme of my book that integrity is a practice. It's not something you just do. So there's a little counterculture there. In fact, you know, I wrote the book because I felt that the things that people say about integrity are, are really wrong. Uh, like that it's, you just do it. You don't just do it. You need to learn it. And like any other skill, because that's another uh, kind of misconception that you're born with integrity. So that's, that's not, that's not helpful. Hmm. Because it, it breeds kind of indolence about, moral judgment so uh, i tend to view it more as you you practice integrity you learn about integrity and you make decisions uh, on a daily basis hundreds of them that involve integrity and sometimes you're going to miss it and sometimes you're not and uh that's what you shoot for so in that sense you know when you miss the mark that's almost as helpful as hitting the mark because when you miss it you learn something and then you well, do better next time. I guess you can also say with integrity in baseball is it's the only sport that actually counts something called an error on the scorecard. Yeah, you know that's true. One of the uh, in the book I talk about baseball a little bit. I I'm a fan, and I'm sure some of your listeners are too. And uh, the you know there was a a game about four or five years ago, and this was before. They really had implemented the full degree of replay. And maybe you remember it. And it was at the ninth inning, the pitcher had a perfect game with two outs in the ninth. I think it was Cleveland and Detroit. I hope I didn't make a mistake there because you've probably got thousands of listeners who are going to not buy my book because I made a mistake on that. <laughs> I apologize if I have. But, but I, and the, the runner... Um, the, you know, sportscasters and ballplayers will tell you the runner always knows if he's out, right? So, because the play is right in front of him. And maybe that's not true, but that's the generally accepted idea about what a runner sees. He sees it better than anybody. So, you've got a guy running down the line, two outs, perfect game, baseball immortality on the line, you know, 23 perfect games. That's it. In the hundreds of thousands played and he knew he was out the runner and he didn't say anything and the umpire blew it in a famous case tearfully admitting that the next day when he saw the replay and the the pitcher was very consoling and graceful generous showed a lot of integrity and excused the ump but my fascination is with the player. Like, why didn't he say something right there? And people say, well, he's not expected to. That's his job to get on base. You know, so we all have jobs. 
But, you know, I had a job as a lawyer, which is to really pursue the advantage of a client. But we also have the job to preserve justice. And that was what's so a ball player, to extend the analogy. Sure, he has a job to try to win, to advance his team, but he also has a job to advance the integrity of the game and fair play. So uh, I know I've sparked controversy with this, but uh, for anybody into sports, I'd love to hear what you say about that because I, I know it sounds strange, but maybe that runner, his name is Luke Donald, by the way, should have just said, hey, ump, I'm out, you know, perfect game. And, you know, that's, so, I, I don't know. So, you know, integrity does have a lot of analogies to baseball. And there's some really great questions that come up every day in ways that we don't think of, uh, of, of as integrity situations. But that certainly was. It was fascinating up until I think it's really been the last couple of years. Golf was the one sport where uh, spectators could actually call in and report um, an error of a golfer that could actually um, cause them to lose, uh, um, you know, a match that they're, they're playing in. Um, so, uh, you've alluded to this in January released uh, a new book, the, the law of small things, creating a habit of integrity and a culture of mistrust. And the book redefines integrity on a personal and professional and business and political level while giving readers intricate guide through various scenarios where integrity, um, can be tested. So I guess, uh, you know, my first question is, why now? What was going on in your professional journey that you needed to write this now? You know, I think, but it's a great question, and thank you for that question. I think, you know, that at, at that particular point, I think in everybody's life, let's just say in most people, I certainly think, it, you know, in the fellowship, there are thousands of people in my situation who look at their lives and think, you know, okay, I've done pretty well. I've done my job, raised my family. I'm good to my neighbors. I'm generous to charity. And perhaps I've even participated in some of the amazing programs that, that the fellowship offers. And I just am so impressed when I read about this. I wish I were younger and could participate. It's so, it's so expansive and helpful. And even though we can do those things, we sometimes say, well, what is really the meaning? I mean, what is, what does God really intend for us? And what is the way to align ourselves with God? And I was very involved in that question, even though I don't come from it to it from a, a Christian tradition, but I certainly am, uh, I come from it to it from the Judeo Christian heritage. And I, I, it was quite spiritual for me. And I decided that I really needed to figure out, well, what, what was my meaning? What was my obligation? And that's a very heavy question because you do have to go back and start reviving all your questions. Maybe some that you asked in college, maybe in adolescence about the meaning of things. And what we find in our culture is a lot of belief, a lot of beliefs that are really half-baked opinions. I mean, including beliefs about integrity and what it is. And then you, you embark on the, you see the value of embarking on a journey through your own beliefs and saying, 
okay, those are not serving me. They don't serve the world. And I am ready to question them and uh, revive them and be a more contributing and valuable uh, participant in the world. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've redefined integrity and um, as, a, as a practice of discerning promises, express and implied, large and small, and fulfilling the duties they create. So why did you feel like you needed to redefine integrity and, and maybe walk us through this new definition? Okay, so the definition is that in, integrity is really the, uh, the fulfillment of promises. Now, there are explicit promises that you make, like you and I are going to get together today at a certain time, and that was, our, that, was, that, that was a promise that you made, and I promised to be here. And a promise can be to meet somebody for lunch at some time or return a library book at the date that you agreed to. To it, but really, the the more interesting question is: What are the implied promises that we uh, that we have, and that we sometimes ignore or frequently ignore? So there, you start getting into uh, duties that are not necessarily apparent. So the idea of a small implied promise that really has big implications is best demonstrated by the white lie. It's the most basic thing. It's the first story in the chapter. And we always tend to view that as inconsequential, or many of us do. And we think, well, it's, it's just a white lie. You hear that expression. And, and also it's there, we can use a white lie to protect the, uh, the feelings of another person. But what, that, what happens is that it, it habituates us to a deception. And now the, and I say it's an implied promise because truthfulness is always an implied promise. I mean, there are certain circumstances to save a life or in the course of a, of a nation's self-protection, its own defense. It's not going to be truthful about where it's deploying strategic missiles. But wherever it's just possible, it's wherever it's, it's really necessary to tell the truth, to augment trust, then you really have a duty, an implied duty to tell it. So there's an example. People say, as I mentioned, well, the white lie is, is inconsequential. It's not the same thing as a president lying. But you have to ask yourself, if we have a culture that condones white lying about something as simple as, let's say, canceling a lunch date, and lying about the reason, why should we expect the president of the United States to tell the truth? Is it really different? Why? Where do you draw the line? You know, it's, uh, I've asked audiences many times, what's the difference between a small thing and a big thing? And nobody really can, can answer that. And they can also, they also have trouble answering the question, well, how are you ready for big things if you don't practice on small things? And we've, we've heard a lot about that. Uh, it's called the slippery slope. You start lying about something and uh, like a white lie, and then it becomes easier to do that. So, 
So the reason I got into this work is because I was fascinated about how the seat of real integrity, of truthfulness, of building trust in a culture, in a political system, depends on the practice in the smallest possible unit in which you can practice it. And that by ignoring that, you're really allowing the power of truthfulness to, to deteriorate and atrophy. And it's going to have cause big cleavages in our culture. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. You wrote, integrity is valuable because it reflects authenticity about who we are not as the culture defines us or ensnares us, but as we know ourselves to be or aspire to be. I had a mentor once say, if you really want to get to know who a person is, just watch them while they're driving. Um, I guess, you know, naturally how people can be jerks on the road. Um, you know, you, you, you presented within the book and of course on this online resource through your website, this quiz, which I scored a 72, by the way. Um, very good. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but I guess maybe a question is, uh, so how, how does someone measure whether they are a person or in, of integrity or not? Uh, okay. I'm going to answer that in a couple of ways, but one sort of maybe 50,000 feet, and then we get down into the nitty gritty into the weeds of it. I think a person measures whether they have integrity. Well, of course, you know, the whole point of the book is to say that you don't have integrity, that you practice integrity in each particular situation. So I guess the, the way to phrase this would be you are good at practicing integrity, at deploying integrity. If you can, if you're good at discerning implied promises in the basic fabric of your life. So in other words, it's not just about, uh, let's say, going to church on Sunday, visiting a sick relative. These are very noble things. You know, raising kids properly, giving them every benefit they can, sending them to college, returning a wallet that you find on the street. You know, uh, These are promises that we make and that we keep because we love people that are close to us. The question becomes, well, what is going to be the exertion we make to understand our obligations to people we don't necessarily know. So there we get into the, the situation on the road, right? The, the texting that puts other people at risk because we're negligent about it. Or the use of um, handicap stickers is a major, it's an epidemic in our culture. People who don't who may even have it lawfully, but use it when they don't need it. It's a way of really robbing somebody else of their right to be in a community. 
and so the lack of integrity is really about that. It's about our kind of blindness to the innumerable obligations that we have in the course of a day and in the course of a lifetime to, to not only understand how to build trust, because that's the key to this, to build trust in the world, but to go out of our way to do it when it's not convenient. And I think that's what the book really shows. All the way, you know, at the risk, uh, maybe you want to cut me off here. I, I just thought of something. You, you know, we, the, the book starts off with the white lie. And it goes through certain things like, you know, do we take dinners from a friend who puts it on his business expense account when there's no business talked about at all? It's purely personal. Do we... I'm in, you know, I, I I go to New York City a lot, and and they ha- and in any city you have these street bargains where you can buy fancy apparel at a fraction of the cost, and that's because it's counterfeit or stolen. But we do that, you know. We we might go into a restaurant, Starbucks, for instance, and hog the table because we don't want to be involved with other people, or, or take two seats on a train. It's um, and then it gets even more complicated. Do we do we look at our stock ownership? I mean, for those of us who are fortunate enough to have a portfolio of any size, often we have mutual funds. Do we take a look at those funds and find out what they're involved in? Some of them are are involved in practices the exact opposite of what the CBF does. And this is pushing the envelope to understand that contribution is really the, at the essence of what integrity is. And we have to understand that we can't see that unless we spend time figuring it out. And it doesn't work to just say, okay, I'm going to handle the stuff right in front of me. You said that um, the person that taught you most about integrity is the late Philip Rock. Uh, state senator from Chicago, and for for many who hear that a a politician taught you the most about integrity is a bit, I guess these days feels like tongue in cheek. So, uh, what did Philip teach you that um, you know he he's the person you point to for for integrity? So, you know, I've gotten that question a few times, and I thank you for your perception and in, in bringing that up. Some people view it as a curiosity and and then leave it at that and never really ask me about it. But it's 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 a good thing. It's a good example because it occurs in Chicago, you know, which has this reputation for just, you know, (laughs) you know, for corruption in politics. Leave it at that. Just fulsome corruption, the breaches of of monumental proportions. But he was a guy who who spent time uh, distancing himself from that, and yet working out the ways of being effective anyway. In other words, he was a he was the president of the Illinois Senate, so his peers respected him. But he was definitely independent, and he he was not anybody. He didn't toe the line for anybody, and he made some compromises, of course. But what he didn't do is ever forfeit his commitment to truthfulness. So when he said, so for your listeners, I'll say this is 
this is what happened. I was, you know, I, I walked in to his office one day. He had appointed me to a very big position, and I was quite young. I was 33, and he appointed me to the Transit Authority of Chicago, one of the nine directors. And I had a very, very difficult vote. And I went in and I just asked him, Phil, how do you want me to vote? And he was basically saying, well, why are you asking me that question? I said, because you appointed me. And he said, so? And I went on and I said, Phil, you're running for the United States Senate. If this transportation vote fails and we, and I'm a participant in that, all of your work in fashioning the legislation that created this authority is going to be is going to go down the drain and you're going to be held responsible for that while you're running for the United States Senate. And he looked at me and he said, look, I put you on that board to do what's right for the people of Chicago. Now you go back to your office and figure that out. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I had never, nobody had ever said that to me. And then in all my years in politics, I, I don't, I, I don't think I ever heard it again. Now, that's not to say that there aren't people of, of real commitment and truthfulness in politics, and we don't give them enough credit, and they are capable of changing the world, but they need to come forward and say these things. You know, I, I go to a multiplicity of, of spiritual places, including Christian services, even though I'm Jewish, and one thing I'm impressed with is in, in both in both religions, Judaism, Christianity, that the message, uh, whatever it is, if it's a scriptural passage or a commentary on a, on, a, on scripture, is repeated from one week to the next. And, and why is that? Because we don't learn the truth in one sitting. We have to keep being reminded. It's almost as if there's a kind of entropy you know, of, uh, of falling backwards. Well, that's what happened with Phil. You know, I never really heard a politician say that to me. I heard them say the opposite. And so when I was in that room, I talked about with a presidential candidate and watched all these people, all these consultants saying, well, we've got to fashion a compelling soundbite rather than allow the truth to be compelling. I was, I was taken aback, but I knew, I just couldn't recall Phil's voice in time. I couldn't protest. I didn't know how. And this happens to people in business, in corporations that are cynical about their responsibilities to the public. And we find ourselves speechless because it's, we're not practiced at this. So Phil gave me the first boost, just like a, a, a lesson, a spiritual lesson that we get in, in services. But, but you have to keep exposing yourself to it so that you're prepared. And I think that's a key teaching about integrity. I think why most people would receive, you know, you learning integrity from a politician to be a bit tongue in cheek is just nowadays, it seems like the political climate is, you know, a climate of self interest. You told this fascinating story um, about the Himalayan mountain climbers and I believe it was 2006 that chose to walk past a man who uh, needed help all because, you know, they had invested, you know, just monstrosity amount of money to, you know, hike Everest. And 
um, to me, it's a, a wonderful modern day parable of, of today's self-interest. And you wrote, um, how did these climbers manage to subordinate the value of human life to purely self-interest goals, assuming that you'll be ready for big things such as saving life without practicing small things as an illusion of moral competence? Um, our culture seems to be one of self-interest. So how do we, how do we change the culture? Um, what does that look like on a, on a macro level? I, I think we have to understand how we're embedded in it. So we have a, a culture that's um, narcissistic and self-aggrandizing. Uh, we afford the winners uh, glory. And all too often, we don't give credit to the people who are not necessarily, quote, winners, but who have tried really hard and keep plugging uh, and represent fine uh, qualities. But celebrity seems to rule. We have cults of the, of, of the personality we have that are, very, are distortions of, of the kinds of characteristics we, we really want to have in a culture. We have dysfunctional politi- politics. We have candidates who pander to us. And we have lying as, ex- as an accepted means of relating to the public. So, we, so the first step to answer your question is to, to really get a sense of that how there's a dark side to our culture to understand that materialism and acquisitiveness is, is good in, in its way and provides for certain kind of happiness and certain kind of benefits, but that the truest values may not be inherent in, in those pursuits. So in a way you have to pull yourself away from the, prevailing culture. You have to, to practice integrity. You, you very much have to, uh, to, to, to distance yourself from a culture that proclaims the power and the importance of integrity, but does very little to promote it. And that's really hard because then you become kind of distant from your own culture. They, you, you cited the, the example of mountain climbers. And, and it's a fascinating thing to me because when 40 men passed up a sick climber and let him die because they were more involved in getting to the summit. It was a, it was a crisis, of course, and it became a, a, a major controversy. But it, the, the real lesson is how in our own culture do we let things go, leaving it up to the next person to fix. And so you get, you know, we, we had that horrible uh, downturn in our economy, that's putting it mildly, in 2007, because so many people were looking to, to get their piece of the pie. You know, the, the homeowner, the, the bank, the, 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 the Wall Street brokerage firm, the insurers, the, the people who were supposed to be, the regulators are supposed to be looking at these things. And nobody did their job, leaving it up to the next person do it and we we leave it up to the next person to be more cautious on the road because we're texting we leave it up to others to report sexual harassment that we see in the workplace you know politicians leave it up to us to sort through all their exaggerations advertisers with their outlandish boasts leave it up to us to try to 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 try to find sort the truth so it comes down to us and what is our training for this? Well, I think scripture 
is really important. Uh, the fellowship of other people, the work that the CBF does is extremely important because that that takes you to a level of understanding what people foreign to you do. I mean, I'm talking about the foreign work that you do. And it's if you can relate to someone, Mother Teresa said, you know, can someone, it's easy to, to protest the environmental degradation of a river that runs in the back of your house, but it's harder to understand that it's equally a breach of humanity to not care about what happens in, you know, in the river that runs through Calcutta. Now, I botched that. But when I was looking at your work in preparation for this, I, I said, this is a group that is bridging that gap. And I think that's, that's what we're talking about. Integrity is looking beyond just what's expected of you, what you'll be embarrassed if somebody notices that you don't do, and instead be proactively engaged in healing a world, including your own culture, that is uh, um, that that is constantly breaching integrity, and and figuring out how to enter that that problem and and address it. I think that's my mission, and I think that's the mission of many of your listeners, and I think that's the point of the book. Mm-hmm. Well, I felt like chapter t- twenty-two was a, a reality gut punch for the church. The chapter is your your company's new mission statement, coping with hypocrisy, duplicity, and sheer nonsense in the workplace. And for far too often in the more recent years, and as a church historian, more often than we care to admit in the church's long history, the church has been an institution oftentimes of failed integrity. And we've lost people's trust by allowing people with microphones to say the most outrageous and judgmental things. Um, in more recent years, we've allowed megachurch pastors to posture themselves along with politicians to support some of the most absurd uh, things as well. And, and we've not acted when we should have, namely uh, the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, offenses mm-hmm. against the LGBTQ community, so on and on and on. And you wrote, thinking that loyalty at work means doing whatever the boss wants you to do is collusion and the breach of integrity. And I wonder as a consultant, what advice would you give to church leaders trying to repair the integrity of the church, this organization within its community that it lives and within its, its membership base? And I know that's a pretty deep question, but um, I thought I'd toss it to you and see what you think. It's, it's a very deep question, but as you were saying it, I was, I, I was thinking I'm going to give a pretty simple answer because I, that could be, I think the building block for something more complicated and more subtle. But I think the, the answer is don't advocate for what you believe advocate for what you discern is the most truthful. And that means instead of feeling something strongly and just saying it or getting caught up in your point of view, uh, and pursuing it, ask yourself, what are the duties here? What, what are the values that, again, I'm going to hesitate to use values. They are values, but I, I use the word in the book duties. A lot of people tell me, you know, you shouldn't use duty because it reminds people of their mothers telling them to make their bed, you know. But 
it's a it's a very powerful concept. What is your duty? You're, you have a duty to justice. You have a duty, you know, in the fellowship of a church. You have a duty. You have a duty to God. You have a duty to the pastor. You have a duty to the uh, to your fellow uh, to your congregants, fellow congregants. Yeah, and if you're in a meeting like that, you have a duty to the people who uh, are joining you in a mission to accomplish something. And, you know, the, the beauty of it is by pointing out, or actually writing down, who do I owe a duty to? It's, it's a kind of discipline. It gets you away from, well, I just feel really strongly about this, about stating our mission in a certain way, and I'm going to pursue it no matter what. Because I think people tend to look at the strength, the boisterousness of their conviction as a substitute for the truth of their conviction. And, and I think the most successful ones, you know, that practice integrity in groups are the ones that can understand that distance themselves from the emotion of it, get out of belief. Belief is a trap, what you believe. It's what you discern to be truthful is the key, what your duty is. And when they list those duties, it's the starting point. It's like, okay, well, if I have these duties, and I do that a lot in the book, as you know, you know, like... Uh, in different situations, well, I have a duty of loyalty to this person, but I have a duty of truthfulness to, to this person. So in the corporation, in those scenarios, you have a duty of loyalty to a boss, but only to an order that's that's legitimate, not feeding the ego of the boss. And you have a duty of truthfulness to the public. And you have to really understand that that's what integrity is about. It's not about doing the right thing, another misnomer about doing many right things. Now, I don't know if I answered your question, but I'm going to go back to my simple answer, which is get off of your belief, get out of, your, out of the trap of opinion, and discern the duties that, that truthfulness requires, and then, then start your work from there, your process from there. I think you did answer the question. Plus, when you've got a Long Island accent, everything just is like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I believe everything you have to say. So, uh. oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> See, I thought I lost that. Doesn't everybody, isn't everybody sure that they don't have an accent? And I, I guess, you know, doing these interviews all over the country, I, I just kind of accept, okay, let it rip, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's going to come out. So thank you for pointing it out to 60,000 people. <laughs> yeah. uh, so how do you, how do you, uh, see organizations um, or leadership teams using this this book as a resource? Actually, you did ask. That that question was implicit in the other one. And I, I think it's the same thing I just said. You, you, you've got to figure out, look, let's not think about uh, success and uh, winning over the public uh, as the end, as the, as the end goal or the efficiency of a team or, or whatever we imagine the goal to be that ha is tied to a kind of materialistic end, let's start instead with what is the truthful thing to do? What are our duties? You know, my, one of my stories, and I hope this answers your question and I'll try to be brief about it. It's, it's, it's in, um, it's about Paul O'Neill, the president of Alcoa. The, American, the Aluminum Corporation of America, one of the biggest corporations. And he, when he was appointed 
president, he went before the board and he said, look, this is what we're going to do. We are going to eliminate all deaths. Death is not good. Worker deaths is a terrible thing to have. And we're going to make safety uh, our number one priority. And everybody was just actually not only shocked, but livid. Like, how can you eliminate deaths in an industry like that with 100,000 employees? And he said, no, we're going to do it. Now, he later said, and he did. And it was counterintuitive. But what he was getting at was if we, if we engage people in doing something that they can relate to as valuable, not just making profits or making 10 widgets instead of eight, then we've got them engaged. And safety is something that everybody can be engaged in, just like truthfulness. And he changed, changed Alcoa. That's how you do it. What's your greatest hope for the book? I, my greatest hope for the book is that readers can see in it that truthfulness is a keystone habit, is a habit that they are capable of and can exercise, and that enough people seeing it will transform the culture in uh, business and in, in their own lives, in, in their lives as employees, and in our lives as citizens. So, frankly, to put it bluntly, so that politicians, not like Phil Rock uh, that we spoke about, but that politicians who don't tell us the truth and lie to us are thrown out because we won't take it. And the reason we won't take it is because we will have cultivated a tradition and, and a practice of, of truthfulness that we're going to demand other people respect. That's what my hope is. I, I do have another hope. And that is that people will go online and take the quiz, even if you don't buy the book. My plea is not necessarily to buy the book, but to go online uh, at my website and take the quiz. Because when you do that, it's 25 questions, and some of them we went over. It starts with the white lie. But when you do that, it gives us at my company data to understand how people look at integrity. And that helps us fashion the message to get out there about what more we may need to know about it. You mentioned that you got a 72 on the, uh, on the quiz, and that's, that's very good. That means you saw the integrity content in 72% of the questions or roughly 20 of the questions. But maybe there's something that you could learn about the other five that you may have missed. And so uh, that's my hope, that people will go to www integrityintensive.com. Of course, that's one word. And the quiz is right there. And take it and see how you do. Well, the first one I was off the mark on is, you know, relative to us as ministers about, you know, when you tell a story, you might expand uh, some of the content of the story. You know, every good minister who tells a story about catching a fish, it ends up being 20 feet by the time they tell it for the last time. So, yeah. Well, I do cover that. <laughs> well, I do. That's right. That was actually in there. I, uh, you know, the bottom line on that was, uh, if nobody really expects you to tell the truth, you know, truthful, what is the duty of truthfulness? I've spent a lot of time 
saying that word, the duty of truthfulness. Well, is there a duty of truthfulness to, uh, to, to, to tell the truth about the size of the fish that you catch? Well, a lot of people say yes, because you don't want to get, you know, get into the habit of lying about things, which is really true. But part of the issue when I wrote about that was to say, there are some things you just really expect people to exaggerate the size of the fish, the golf score. What were some of the other ones? Do you remember? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, like, those first two got me. So that's <laughs> uh, right. I, I mean, but I had a, I was playing golf with a guy. He said, you know why golf is important because it teaches you to be honest with yourself, which he regarded as the foundation for being honest with others. Cause if you lie on the golf score, even though it's so tempting, then you really don't have any basis to judge yourself. You, you know, you know, you cheated, but you don't really know how much, you know, take a look, stare that 109 <laughs> that you got or whatever it is in the face and go, okay, that's where I'm at. <laughs> I, 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 that's what I, that's my base. So I've got to work from that. Well, for those that want to stay connected with Stuart, uh, of course, you can visit the website he mentioned earlier, integrityintensive.com. Go out and purchase The Law of Small Things wherever books are sold. Stuart, thank you for calling us to strive for a deeper integrity in an age of self-interest. Well, thank you so much, and it was wonderful being your guest. And uh, thank you for being prepared and asking really great questions. I enjoyed it a lot. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.